0: I'm Debbie George Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today we're going to talk about Kanye's conversion matters. The Honorable Alan Clark, author, soldier, joins me in the studio. The coup exposed in the Lee Smith book, and Sidney Powell's latest Flynn masterpiece. And then, of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. I am America.
1: Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth.
0: And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. I've been waiting for an opportunity for a quick segment to talk about Kanye West and his conversion to Christianity. And you know, I think a lot of people are a little bit nervous about it. They're not sure he really means it. I'm actually getting the sense he means it, and I actually think it matters to the American political conversation. Just think about these facts. He has 30 million Twitter followers. That's more than I have, amazingly. 30 million Twitter followers, 21 Grammy Awards. And the thing that's so great about it is, he came to this conversion to Christ in April of this year, but what he talks about, when he talks to the world, when he he, he preaches, he sings, he's got a new album, I'll talk about in a moment, He talks about things that matter, things that directly relate in a real life way in America to the following of Christianity or are falling away from following Christianity. He talks about loss of fathers in the home and that damage to children. He talks about the idea of abortion just being wrong. He doesn't mince words. Abortion is is the taking of life. He talks about the removing of God from public schools and how it's hurting children. He talks about family, community life and basic virtues. He has a new album out, which is called Jesus is King. It was released October 25th. It's already made it to the number one on the Billboard 200. And I will be perfectly honest with you, I haven't really listened to Kanye West music before this. I know he was a rapper. I know he has some pretty rough lyrics people didn't like. But the reason I think it's so consequential and exciting that Kanye West is doing this is because when we when some people try to bring the message to the, America's culture that Christianity matters, that our Judeo-Christian roots matter, that our country needs a, a core in morality, a lot of folks, millennial types, do not want to listen to people they perceive as little old ladies at church. They don't want to listen to the what they perceive as bombastic television preachers. They don't necessarily want to listen to long-term peop, uh, people of the cloth. But when someone they thought they already thought was cool, who actually was popular in singing rap songs with, as I say, pretty off color lyrics and, and topics. And he's talking to them about the idea that Christianity matters, that he puts an album out. Jesus is king. Honestly, if someone had told you that even two years ago, Kanye West would do that. Most people would say, yeah, right but I think it's a wonderful thing because many of us have been talking in America about how when you try to get our country back on track, you try to restate or reset our values, inspire people to believe in our values. It's very hard when so much of America has become oblivious to religion or you know, C&E Christians, Christmas and Easter, but not really have the fabric and core and meaning of Christianity embraced in their lives, a, a true accepting of Jesus versus attending church regularly or irregularly so the idea that someone they already thought was cool who has been through life struggles he was actually in a I believe he's married uh, to kim kardashian in 2014. sometime after 2016 he was actually hospitalized with mental disorders with um, bipolar disorder and, and i think some other problem point is he's had these ch- tough challenges he's lived life and he his whole life is so public everyone knows his stories knows his shortcomings and he's telling people now young people in this country that jesus matters that christ matters that christian matters that faith matters this if he sticks with it is going to be a huge impact on the american political conversation a huge impact on turning america back to its roots and that my friends is today's first five so we have a guest joining us in the studio as i mentioned we launched our show today uh, here's the book with my my signature um where's the camera there's a camera uh signature stickies coming out the side it's called soldiers blood and bloodied money and the author and actually the subtitle is wars and the ruling elites and the author of that book is here in the studio today with me alan clark well i'm delighted debbie thank you so nice to have you here thank you for being here well i'm going to give a little bit more of an introduction to you for our listeners first i will just tell you a little personal and fun aside a few years ago, and I was trying to remember the way here, it was February 2017? Is that what it was when we were in Israel? But yes. yeah, my husband yeah, I and so. I, my husband's on a business trip to Israel, I joined him. Well, it turned out that Alan Clark and his wife Linda were also in Israel on a, a touring trip, not business, but touring anyway. We had breakfast in a, in a hotel the four of us did in Israel, kind of a fun thing, but Alan Clark is a longtime friend, but I want you to know a bit about his life story before we talk about his book. But I'm gonna just start with something, a few things about his life story that matter so much to what he wrote about. He graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point, he was a West Pointer, 1963. 1966, he volunteered for service in the Army, in Vietnam, so he is a Vietnam veteran. While serving in Vietnam, he was injured, an enemy mortar barrage, um, and bottom line of it was, he was hospitalized and eventually resulted in having his amputation of both legs below his knees. On top of that, multiple surgeries, multiple surgeries. So he has served our country, obviously suffered a a significant life-altering injury during his service in Vietnam Uh, went through what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder I mean suffering from those kind of the loss and change in your life and the you know you can imagine being the athletic person you must be you are able to graduate from West Point and then realize the rest of your life you're going to go through life very changed he received all sorts of awards Silver Star uh, the third highest decoration for gallantry in action, Purple Heart, and the Combat Infantryman's Badge. He's also served politically in our country. He served uh, the President George H. W. Bush as the Assistant Secretary for Veterans Liaison and Program Co- Coordination, and Director of the National Cemetery System in the U.S. Department of Veterans. On top of all that, I want to get to and talk about this in a moment. But the other thing that Alan, this Alan Clark, does, I just love is over the years, my husband and I have attended lunches, his organization sponsors, and it's filled with military veterans and some people still serving. And my husband and I all kind of, you know, we kind of duck our heads a little bit low because we're strong patriots, but neither of us are veterans. But when you go to these lunches, He has fabulous speakers describing situations in the military, describing their service, describing uh, all sorts of things related to the defense of America. And the room is just brimming with patriotism, love of America, willingness to serve, love of our military. And this is just all done because you love the military. So I I wanted to share those little tidbits before we got started. That's
1: very kind of you.
0: Well, they're actually, they're, they're amazing uh, and lunches. That you, we do end up feeling like, my gosh, you just, you know, if you never served in the military, you just, most Americans have no idea what the military life entails, just none.
1: That's true. Um, all of us have, a, most of us have a, a very special spirit of affinity and comradeship with each other, but we also like people such as you and your, and Eric that are such great patriots, I can assure you.
0: Well, thank you. Well, I want to start with our talk today. I'm going to start with this um, this book, and again, it's called Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money, Wars and the Ruling Elite. Okay, the camera isn't usually over there. I'm trying to turn it the right way. There we go. There we go. Okay. There we go. <laughs> okay, so tell me what, why you wrote this book. I'd love just to hear what motivated you to write this. Well,
1: I started out uh, 12 years ago with my own autobiography about Vietnam, um, my wounding and my healing story and my healing through my Christian faith uh, from post-traumatic stress. And then I wrote a a second book called Valor in Vietnam about stories about soldiers of Vietnam and sailors and airmen and marines and, and an army nurse and so forth. And then I started getting into wars and studying history. I've always loved history. So I started beginning to ask, well, what in the world were the real stories behind how these wars started and conducted? And especially, you know, a lot of people write war stories. And but but my stories are, are stories about what I call the usual suspects that I've found out about that get us into wars for personal profit and fulfillment of greed and I call them I call it a a seeking of cupidity okay and then cupidity cupidity
0: C-P-I-D-I-T-Y. yeah
1: cupidity and then um, I, I just cover four major wars that we fought in specifically American Revolution Civil War Spanish American and what I call the banana banker and oil wars in Central America Uh, much so spearheaded by a two two two-time Medal of Honor recipient Major General Smedley Butler in the Marines so the combination I started looking at this history and and what we'd been told were the reasons that we went to these wars were not necessarily the truth and there was something behind them that was economic And so I started getting into that and I started buying books that were 100, 125 years old, you know, antiquarian bookstores and so forth, and started getting into it and just fascinated with the different aspects and elements that were behind the wars that caused the casualties. And I cover casualties. You know, there's no holds barred on the casualties. I mean, war is not a, it's not a, you know, blow the bugles and wave the flags and charge. There's, There's after effects, I'm an example.
0: Yes, you are. Well, actually, I want to focus on one of the wars you talk about, the Revolutionary War. And then I want to turn and talk about Syria and Turkey and the Kurds. But Mm. to be clear, so your book, you talk a lot about the unknown reasons, unknown to the average American for the wars that we get into. So for example, the Revolutionary War, people talk about it and they're just, we have pride In America because of the outcome because we got around to having the Declaration of Independence and building a country around the idea that we each have rights from God simply because we're born that's what the declaration starts out saying the structure of America the Constitution so we and the whole the creating of what I often say in the show is the most extraordinary experiment in human liberty ever in the world America but you're talking here about, you know, and so we talk about, well yay, we got into this Revolutionary War because we wanted to stand up for the right of men to live in freedom and, and live in liberty. And we got to that conclusion with the Declaration and the Constitution. But talk a little bit about the financial things that occurred ahead yeah. of time that got us yeah. to where we, on the Revolutionary yeah. War.
1: Well, the French and Indian War cost Great Britain a lot of money for seven years. And they wanted us to pay the bill for the war that that, uh, we had fought plus the British had fought against the French and the Indians so they said okay we're gonna have a debt from this America you're gonna pay us they put all sorts of taxes on us all sorts of special things we could not issue our own coinage we cannot us in our own money and they said you will only use the English pound so this led to a lot of smuggling by our people you know we just didn't worry about that people know about the Tea Party and everything but just so many um, you know it was like original taxation without representation and we just finally said and it started up in Boston you know with Samuel Adams, mm-hmm. and people like that. that One of my that, heroes. Yeah. Yeah, yes. and we're gonna we're gonna take this country back, and we're gonna run mm-hmm. it ourselves. We're not gonna let these people run it. And with with the church, especially the church, the Anglican Church is in control in Virginia and partially in New York. We've just had it. You know, we don't want this anymore. So we're gonna fight for it, and we fought, and we won.
0: So that war, even though there were unknown fin- unknown to most people, financial reasons behind. England's pressing of taxation which we felt was unfair the, our forebears thought were unfair and, and we were saying we didn't have representation so that was our reason we still got to a right conclusion in, in getting into that war and, and, and fighting for our independence or the outcome is so great you kind of say, okay whatever the finances were we're, were not problematic is well, that right or?
1: It, Well the, the financial the financial reasons that pushed britain to put these onerous taxes on us and constraints on us financially was what really pushed us over the edge yeah uh, because they're the ones that control they had the government they had the governors they controlled everything so we were basically a vassal state of great britain that's what it boiled down to and they were not uh, you know we didn't control our own destiny and just a whole lot of things like that relative to the economics but it was just an oppressive Uh, Colin, you know, it took a long time, almost 200 years, for everybody else to get out of the yoke of the British Empire, it was after World War II before other people caught up with us from 1776.
0: Yes, it's true. I'm tempted to get off on a side, but I won't do that. I'll stay focused. Something interesting I just thought about uh, that was related to the how. Uh, actually, I'll tell you quickly. There was a uh, a store a book written by Brett Bear that deals with the with FDR. And uh, we just had a little event at our home featuring him. But it was a Tehran conference: FDR, Stalin, and Churchill talking about, you know, how do we how are we going to stop Hitler? And we, they had to get a plan they all could agree on. It became. D-Day was the ultimate name of the plan but they were talking at this time trying to figure out what to do and part of what Churchill was bothered by even in that era in World War 2 Churchill was bothered by what FDR seemed to be signaling was ultimately you have to UK you have to stop having all these colonies you you can't really keep India as your colony and even then which seems relatively recent history Churchill saying, ah, "I'm not too sure," but he didn't like that talk. But anyways, well, you know, uh, they depended upon
1: Australians and um, you know, Indians and Pakis and, and everybody all over the world. They depended upon them to fight for the British Empire. Yes, and you know that they, they 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 could possibly, if they wanted to, after about 47 or 48, once they formed the Commonwealth. But before that, they were basically required to serve. And so, if Great Britain went to war in World War One, World War Two. Everybody had to go fight.
0: So the colonies served them militarily. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, now I want to ask you, because you have studied, and we can't go into the astounding depth of your book, uh, and all of the different intricacies, so I wanted to just pick some particular issues I mentioned to you before we got together today. Given what you understand about the armaments industry and the actually i made a little list i wouldn't uh, leave them all out the armaments industry the uh, religious entities leaders politicians bankers media titans lawyers secret societies all of that really playing behind the scenes in decisions america made throughout history going to war which i i i mean honestly people don't know anything about and that.
1: that hasn't changed debbie that hasn't changed It is these powerful elitists and these different special interest groups that still get us into wars again so that our young people, you know, they they join the military for this or that reason, you know, education, patriotism, family legacy, whatever the case may be, we're the ones that go carry it. You know, the people in the boardrooms, they don't fight. Right. You know, they just direct the financial aspects. Um, and so forth
0: so what's your sense because it's a particularly challenging thing in america and the world today dealing with the threat of radical islam dealing with the aggression for example of turkey and we've talked about in the show uh, about erdogan the leader of turkey he's in many people's accounting he's a jihadist he, he's right there with the idea of jihad and islam so in that kind of context you had turkey and the recent discussion was Turkey was going to invade into northern Syria, and we Americans were had in the past sided with the Kurds, Kurds had helped us get you know, fight ISIS, and people thought President Trump was wrong to pull our military back from northern Syria, fail to protect the Kurds, and essentially enable Erdogan's incursion. And so I don't know, in the complexities of what you understand, the causes of war, yeah. what was your sense about President Trump's decision to pull American can, troops away? Can I give you a little
1: background? Absolutely. All right. Number one, about 2009, very few people know that Qatar and Saudi Arabia wanted to have a natural gas pipeline from Saudi Arabia, and you know, natural gas from Qatar, through Jordan, into Syria, and offload it in Syria for the European market and get into Mm -hmm. competition with Russia. Okay. Okay, Assad did not want to let that happen. So automatically, the lobbyists that that wanted to make money off Qatar and Saudi Arabia national ga- natural gas going there, they couldn't make their money anymore. So I don't trust these politicians anymore. So what it was pushing Obama to then go into Syria and decide that he would join the Sunni operation there to go against Assad who was allied with the Shiites in Iran so he so he said okay we're going to put a certain amount of special forces troops in there we're going to help the kurds we're going to we're going to try to overthrow the uh, Assad government for a variety of reasons. And he talked about genocide. Well, the fact is that a whole Benghazi operation was set up by the State Department to take arms that they had pulled out of Libya during Gaddafi's tour, put it in that secret base in Benghazi. What was a State Department ambassador doing in a little mission with about six or eight Americans? He was directing that to ships, leaving Benghazi, going up into Syria, going up into Turkey, being offloaded to help the people overthrow Assad. So part of it was that they couldn't get their pipeline. That was number one. And number two, well, let's overthrow him. What right do we have to overthrow Assad? That's his country. Those are his people. I mean, we just can't fight all these wars. Americans have gone time and time again. The fact is that the the Kurds and also Iraqis are the ones that, that, that got rid of ISIS. You know, the Kurds have a very interesting thing that people don't quite know about, and that's their PKK, which mm-hmm. is their terrorist organization mm-hmm. that has been against Turkey for many, many years. The original founder of PKK is a guy named Okalan, who was a communist and he is a a Marxist and he's in prison in Turkey but he's still directing the efforts. So it's all nice and good to say, well these Kurds are great friends of ours and certain Kurds are good friends of ours. They helped us up in the north of Iraq but the fact is that little group called the PKK, they're terrorists, they're terrorists against Turkey. Turkey has protected our flank against Russia for NATO so we have kind of conflicting opinion we yep. want to support the Kurds we want to support Turkey I personally think that the deal was we know we can get Baghdadi so let's get Baghdadi And Turkey says he's about five kilometers from Turkey that was my next question please go ahead <laughs> yeah well we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll let you get him but the, the trade-off politically is you're gonna allow us to go into go into the Kurd area and we need to set up that barrier Okay? right cuz we want to get Assad and so we want a barrier there between us and bring these Syrian refugees back into their own country
0: so the PKK within Turkey has been attacking Turkey i mean pk turkey's in part saying look these people are pummeling us all the time yeah. we're pushing back because we don't want them doing that to us so there's so much complexity over there so oh it it, it is yeah. a, it is a an, an you know like they've said,
1: a puzzle with an enigma i mean you name it yeah. it's like one of those little little uh, russian um,
0: keep pulling it. Yeah, keep
1: pulling. There's something else underneath, you know.
0: Yeah. So, the, in fact, what you just said, I had read some speculation, and it made perfect sense to me, the idea that we pulled our troops back. But actually, in fact, when the Baghdadi uh, capture or the killing of him was announced, Someone, and I think it was President Trump, had said, "Yeah, this was actually um, a um, this was in, in plan, uh, plan, an operation for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Meaning before he'd even announced, that it, we're pulling our troops it back. might have been a quid pro quo,
1: you know, and allow allow the Turks to do it. You know, you're only Baghdadi, We know he's only five kilometers from Turkey, so we're going to go get him. And Turkey okay, 'Okay, we're going to let you do that, but this is this is the trade-off.'
0: Yep." So on your broader sense of what you know, because you know, you do write and have spoken about the tremendous harm and obviously not just to our soldiers. We get into wars maybe we should or should not be in or we stay in too long, but soldiers, their families, their, the whole of the American culture and fabric and, and, and community feels the pain of, of wars that we did need to be in. Right now though, with dealing with radical Islam, which I you know we you and I have talked about before, we've heard speakers talk about before. You know, we have, I think, an obligation, or let I me mean, state it as a question. Do you agree that America, that it's a justifiable reason to be engaged in some military action if we are fighting back against Islamic jihad jihadist aggression or do we need to only be doing that if they're at the borders of America no
1: no we need to we need to do it with our special operations forces which yeah. is what it was uh, Obama put 500 special forces special operations people there they're the ones who were working with the Kurds okay they're the ones that wiped out Isis but Iraq got troops in there to help us out also it wasn't just a Kurdish American deal the Iraqis were helping us out there so in and, and the the Turks at one time they, they don't especially want ISIS, alright, to be attacking them but right. it's alright if they attack others. This, this fella in Turkey he is really an Islamist, okay. Uh, and th- Erdogan, what
0: you're talking about.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. He, he's really an Islamist and I'm not sure that, that he's a proper guy to be in NATO but he, we do have an air base there and we do have a naval base in Turkey so we've got some Americans that, that they could be surrounded and they could be wiped out if we push them too far. Now they had their reasons for wanting to go into that area, and the Kurds have been, should have had their own country after World War One. They were in four different areas. When France and Britain divided up the world, they should have given the Kurds their own country back then, but that didn't happen. So they have been just kind of a, a people without a country right. all this time. But now we, Trump put in 2,200 Special Forces people, which means SEALs, Delta Force, Rangers, Army Special Forces and the the Special Operations Helicopter Operation, which is what went in to get Baghdadi. So we haven't had a whole lot of troops there once Obama pulled the American troops out of Iraq. But we have just enough to to quell them down. But ISIS is not just there. ISIS has stuff all over the world. They're They're in Africa. They're in South America. They're just all over the world.
0: And, you know, it's an interesting thing. They are. We've talked about differences. In fact, I can't remember the young people's name, but there were two which way, I think it was two Americans that were in one of the former um, Uzbekistan, whatever one of those countries, one one of those where ISIS has infiltrated the two American students bicycling and proving to the world that everything is cool here and they were killed by ISIS. And then there was a group, uh, I think they're Australian young people who were proving again, trying to tell the world, there's nothing to fear here, everywhere you go is safe. And they were in maybe Morocco and were killed by ISIS. And the point, every time I read about this, ISIS is spread everywhere. And so the savvy use, of American military, it seems, ought to be more special force targeting, tracking them down, yes. because it's not yeah. a it's not a traditional war. No, it's, you line not, the troops it's not up. tanks yeah. against
1: tanks and, and coming out of foxholes anymore. It's an asymmetric warfare, which means we have to go out. It's a different kind of a thing where we have to go after individuals. But special forces and SEALs are, are trained for these these operations.
0: Yeah, to you go know, after
1: the bad guys. To after just like Baghdadi. You know yeah. the, the the Baghdadi's last words were. I didn't know we had a
0: dog. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that, you know, what I saw that on, on a, wherever I saw it online, I didn't know we got a, when did we get a dog or I something? Know I mean, where did that big dog come from? <laughs> which is so funny because, as our listeners likely know, in Islam, for some reason, I guess because Muhammad didn't like dogs, all of Islam is kind of, has had that thought that we dogs It's, it's are, a
1: cultural deal. You know, in, in the Philippines, it was a, a pork deal. You know, the, the pigs and so forth. They don't want pigs around.
0: Pork. Yeah. Pigs, pork, and dogs. Well, um, so it's interesting. I, I think that for people, and I am certainly guilty of it, I am such a pro-America, you know, pro-revolutionary war. I love the idea in the Civil War that even though we didn't start out with a mission of ending slavery, it wasn't this pure mission you're taught in elementary school that we had, we had to decide about slavery and we, we did the right thing and we went forward as a country and realized that if all men are created equal, it means all, we have to get rid of slavery. There's so many more complicating factors behind the scenes and, and financial things that really were the, the instigator. And I, it's it's kind of funny. It's like on the one hand, your book is kind of kind of attacking my my um, what's the right word? Uh, you know, kind of America loving dreams. But you love America, you love the military, but you're just saying people should understand the factors in play behind the scenes. What's
1: really behind it? Who's who's making money? Follow the money. That's the bottom line. Civil War, you know, follow the money. Who's making money off this, you know? The, the slavery was a big issue, and I'm sure glad that slavery was gotten rid of in this country. No question about it. It's just horrible. It's been horrible since the beginning of time for anybody yep. to be slaves. I'm glad we got rid of that. But there were some other issues involved. And I cover in the Civil War uh, assassination attempt by presidents of the United States by Southern sympathizers because they were not... They did not want states to come in as slavery states. They wanted to get rid of them. And I also cover the uh, the French coming into Mexico. I mean, I, I did an extensive, amazing, um, in my mind, amazing. Yes, it was amazing. I
0: can agree with you. Yeah. Oh,
1: you know, over <laughs> over a hundred books in the bibliography plus over two hundred footnotes. Much less all that. It just people don't know anything about this. Did you know? When people read that, did you know France attacked Mexico in 1861, invaded Mexico? yeah people they controlled it for six years
0: yeah people don't know those things and uh, you know that kind of starry-eyed love of America thing you you could read the things that you write about and think well gee that kind of tarnishes my sense of American history but really what you want ultimately is truth you yes. want to know facts and truth if that's the fact accept
1: it but it, it, it's not America in jealous nothing it's not the middle class. It's not the basic, good, solid working Americans. It's the people at the top, those elitists, that sit in their boardrooms and they make their money and they have, through history, by using the little people to do the things they have for expansionism, for territorial gains, for economic gains, and for building their wealth. That's what happens.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. And we're gonna, uh, try, getting to our closing on this um, discussion about this book, but you know. This idea of becoming more informed is one step, and it is a good step in understanding what really happened, really motivated things. But no one likes to feel like your strings are pulled, that you're a puppet, like you thought you cheerfully went off to Vietnam to stand up against communism and stand for the free world. And and yet behind the scenes, all sorts of strings are pulled, money was changing hands and people sitting around boardrooms. So this may be an impossible last question. You know, my dad used to use the expression all the time. We talk about some, We he loved to talk about world history and social causes and social, anyway, he always would end up with, Twas ever thus, it's always been that way. And so is this how it will always be or is your book written in part? Because people could probably begin to expose this and maybe change the influence and power of this cabal that seems to be pulling so many strings, shaping America's foreign well, policy.
1: Well, the American electorate, needs to be sure they understand before we send people off to war. What's the real reason? Ask questions, get away from their TVs and their sitcoms and so forth, pay attention, go to the town halls, listen to what people are saying and say, does that make sense? What that politician is saying? Do, Do we really need to do that? Who's gonna make, the big thing, who's gonna make money off this? Yeah. You know What company is gonna sell the weapons, whether needed or not, for their profits? What's the propaganda, which was a big deal in the Spanish-American War? What lawyers like John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan that made a heck of a lot of money helping the Germans build up in the 30s? Right. That's one of the other things I couldn't get into just very barely here. But these are the kinds of things that we need to pay attention to.
0: You know, I, uh, you, that's, that was very well said. You know, I was thinking of an analogy and, um, about how in America, we always say we're so grateful for we have all the developments of modern medicine and we have pharmaceutical companies and look at the great things they do. They come up with new drugs and they test them and they help people. But pharmaceutical companies are also inspired to sell what they create. And so they sell essentially end up selling to people things they don't need. In fact, they that there was a um, there was a book selling sickness. That was what it was called It was about the pharmaceutical companies determined to sell their drugs by selling sickness, by tantalizing people to think, well, you know, did you ever have the, the uh, experience of blah, blah, blah happens? You probably have this disease. You probably need this. Well, it's kind of interesting. We like to think of our armaments industries, the parallel I'm making, armaments industries as people who are just loyal Americans wanting to fund and, and prepare our soldiers to have the best equipment possible so we go to war, we can win it. And you're saying, actually, I'll let you close on this, the armaments industries actually more likely to be encouraging the war to be able to continue production and sale of what they make. Is that no, right?
1: Because they're pushed by the profits, they're pushed by their stockholders to have higher earnings per share. I have an exact example of this. I was, in, I was involved uh, several years ago with getting a uh, fisher house down at the VA Medical Center so that the families that came in that have their, their um, sons and daughters sick there could stay for $10 a night. We had to pull teeth to get the arms merchants in the areas to donate money for that, these are the guys and gals in their in their big boardrooms again mm-hmm. that make money off sending our troops off overseas to get hurt and to get maimed and come back and get old and get sick and their families come to the hospital. We couldn't get all the money we needed. Yeah, it was it was it was. I, I was so dispirited, so yeah. dispirited.
0: Yep. Alan Clark, thank you for the astonishing amount of research you obviously did to produce such a book. And again, my friends, looking at the correct camera, we are, we are looking at the correct camera. There we go. This is Soldiers' Blood and Bloodied Money, Wars and the Ruling Elite. You can get this on Amazon. Amazon right. And um, also, do you have a website of your own that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Well,
1: my, my website for, uh, is combatfaith.com that's my main website to help veterans heal with post-traumatic stress i put that together about 15 years ago combatfaith.com
0: combatfaith.com yeah alan clark thank you so much thank you for coming in delighted to
1: be here thank you happy you could be here thank you
0: okay the next thing we're gonna turn to we can i want to talk about very briefly has to do with this coup exposed this is the shortest story because i want to get to one last i cannot wait to tell you about sydney Powell's latest filing on Flynn. But let's quick talk about this, this uh, paper coup. We're talking about the coup being exposed. This is another book, and uh, we have extremely wonderful, Matt the Wonderful, with a clip. I wanted to show you the picture of this book you can buy it on Amazon. It's called The Plot Against the President by Lee Smith. This is a book that Devin Nunes, the current congressman, who was the first person in Washington in the Congress to finally figure out what the left have been up to inside the FBI Department of Justice Obama team inside those entities concocting a hoax against President Trump. So this guy is writing essentially about what Devin Nunes uncovered. I got to tell you, folks, this is a this is a book you have to read and understand, especially if your friends think, well, probably Trump did something wrong. He must have done something wrong or they wouldn't be investigating. This guy has footnoted, detailed, and um, and this and again, the book is called "The Plot Against the President: The True Story of How Congressman Devin Nunes Uncovered the Biggest Political Scandal." And the author, Lee Smith, is writing all about how what Devin Nunes came to realize as time marched on, and they were calling FBI Director Comey in front of Congress. And I'll just say one little tidbit to tease you about this, but the reason I think this is so important is this. This impeachment effort in Washington is going to be dragged out as long as the Democrats can do it. They want to have a cloud over President Trump's head leading up to the 2020 elections. This effort to get him over the Trump Russia collusion flopped because it turned out after millions of dollars, Bob Mueller found zero zip, not a nothing. There's nothing to it. So this is a, uh, but this book is exposing how it wasn't just that there was legitimate concern whether President Trump might have colluded with the Russians, so they had to start investigating it. It sets up the sequence explaining. Explaining to America through Devin Nunes' eyes and observations what the FBI did, starting with there was a testimony. If I don't find it quickly, I will march on. But the testimony by um, FBI Director Comey in Washington—I think it was in April, March of 2017, March of 2017—Comey's up in Washington, and he's testifying before the committee with Devin Nunes uh, chairing it. And he just said, basically, Nunes said, "I wanted to get him up here to say." what do you have? Do you have it or not? You've been investigating what is there? And, you know, pretty much Comey set up America, set up President Trump at that time by essentially expanding, in fact, expanding in his testimony, who was really looking into this, who was being accused as wrongdoers. And so what Comey was doing, according to Nunes, was Comey was setting himself up so that If President Trump ever chose to fire him, which he later did, as we all know, I think in September of that year, um, no, in May, actually, um, that just that that testimony that day by Comey in Congress set President Trump up. So when Trump moved to fire him and did fire him, Comey could characterize that termination as the beginning of obstruction of justice comey was setting up the president and this book is full of so many revelations i touched on a couple other ones yesterday i uh, want to hit one more that is covered in this book that i just think is really important to understand the media in this country is extremely culpable in what they permitted to continue to be reported the media decided early on when i say the media not shows with integrity like this one america can we talk i'm talking about ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, they got on board with a destroy Trump mission. That is what they did. And everything they reported, everything they chose not to report, what they focused on, what they didn't bother telling you, the way they characterized things, the way they stuck. In fact, I told you there were studies showing that they increased the number of times. The word impeachment was in the same caption in a news story as Trump and the mental impact that has on the American people. The media got on board of getting rid of Trump and abandoned all sense of, of journalistic integrity, leading to things which ultimately was the American people, the electorate began to think, well, there must be something here. Everyone's saying it. Everyone's talking about it. there must be something to it. And the division in families, I mean, families across this country literally had kids in college, kids out of college deciding not to come home for Christmas because they were so upset. How could you people support President Trump? He's so mean. He's so awful. He's such a liar. The media played an enormous role. They have complicity in what the FBI and DOJ did to attack President Trump. Much more of that story, but I want to turn to my last story today because Sidney Powell, who has been on this show many times and will have on again, I'm sure, Sidney Powell's latest filing in the case involving Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. I want—I cannot wait to just hit these three points with you. So where we are on this, Sidney Powell, now attorney for Lieutenant General Michael Flynn has already pled guilty So she filed a motion to compel Brady evidence. Brady is just the the standard in federal law actually comes from a case named Brady basically says when you are prosecuting and you have someone, you filed charges, someone is being prosecuted, the duty of the prosecutor, you must turn over all potentially exculpatory evidence, meaning anything you have that would help the defense excuse me, help the defense, either defend itself or even call into question a witness the prosecution is bringing anything that would help the defense. You have to turn it over. So the prosecutors in the case involving Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, what they did to him was they continued investigating and talking and and at first he didn't even realize they weren't on his side. He thought they were. This is the Trump administration. This is the Trump FBI. I'm, they're, they're my team. These are my guys. They got Flynn into the position where he's very, very worried about what they're going to do, but they hadn't charged him yet. So up until the time they charge him, they don't have a duty under Brady. They pretty much charged him, worked out a plea deal and got him to plead guilty within about a day. So then once he's pled guilty, there's no pending prosecution and they still have no Brady obligation. You have to understand what they did they set up this man to not be able to defend himself to waive their own responsibility to produce brady evidence this is what is now the issue that sydney powell the brilliant is and she is a if i ever get arrested heaven forbid i'm, I'm gonna hire her whatever she charges but she filed a motion, I had to hit three points she made because it's really important to understand, she is not just exposing the wrongdoing done to General Michael Flynn. She's exposing the wrongdoing, the entire mindset inside the FBI that we are going to get Trump. We don't care what it costs. We don't care what it takes. We're going to get them. So let me just tell you these, these interesting things. This is what she, she uh, put in her pleading. The government sought and received permission. This is a legalistic thing, a sir reply by complaining. So the government, the FBI is now or the DOJ is complaining that Sidney Powell and her motion to compel production of Brady evidence. So she's trying to get the judge to order the defense, the the government to produce the Brady evidence. She says. The, the government essentially bootleg. They claim that the defendant, Flynn and Powell, bootlegged new arguments into his reply. But then so that so the so, uh, you know, the government is complaining about this. But she said, but they didn't say in what they wrote. What exactly? What is it that wasn't done? And she says the government's sir, reply is new only in its stunning admissions and untenable paradoxes. According to the government, it had no obligation Um, to produce its superfluity, which is abundance of Brady evidence before Mr. Flynn pleaded guilty because he wasn't a defendant until he was formally charged and it had no obligation to produce its cash uh, after he pleaded guilty the same or the next day. Well, because his guilty plea erased its obligation. They're basically saying had no, they they said they, Short circuit his ability to ever have access to Brady evidence. Second thing, ma- point she's making. So the 302s, you've been talking about these, it's the form of the FBI interviews somebody. They go back, they write up the 302s. Evidence now exists, not speculation, evidence that inside the FBI, the people changed Flynn's 302s. Comey and others inside the FBI had said, Yeah, we talked to Michael Flynn. We don't think he was lying. Everything seemed fine. Didn't think he was lying. And so the 302s were altered apparently by Lisa Page and Peter Strzok. So her point on this is, so she's trying to demand, so you have to get this and see how nefarious the government's conduct is. Sydney Powell is saying, I want to see all of the versions of the 302s about Flynn that got, before you got to the one that we now have in front of us. I want to see all the versions. And the government's answer was something like, well, you know, I don't have it with me today. Like, like that was an, literally like he's saying, I, I don't seem to have that in my pocket. So she fortunately for us understands the system of the FBI. So she says again, Sidney Powell, the government attempts to gloss over the existence of at least one earlier draft of the Flynn 302, then asks the court to leap blindly to the conclusion if it did exist, it contained the same information as the government had already designed, uh, deigned to produce. Aside from the inherent contradiction, so she's saying if, there, if the government's trying to say the first 302 had the same as the one you produced, you know, then, why, then, then there wasn't any change. It wouldn't be a first one. And then she says, the FBI Sentinel System, and she's capitalizing Sentinel, it's a, it's a computer program. Sentinel System can retrieve any draft. Drafts are numerically serialized when placed in the system. She knows the system. She's saying, you can't just say, I don't have the old 302s. She's really hammering them uh, on, on producing these things. And um, and she's also, she dropped something else. You know, this is gonna make them nuts, which is Flynn's lawyers at the time of this FBI arm-twisting, you you can't even call it a questioning arm-twisting, his lawyers at Covington had helped him prepare his FARA, F-A-R-A, Foreign Agent Registration Act. They helped him produce and fill out the FARA. He was then being questioned about the accuracy of what he put in his FARA. So the Covington lawyers who helped him do that form, fill out the form correctly, they were in, in conflict. They're trying to protect, they're supposed to represent their client's interests, but he's being accused of putting false things about his fera, which if he did, the lawyers are responsible because they helped him fill it out. So they're trying to push. They're in this meeting with the DOJ and Flynn, trying to push Flynn. Yeah, maybe better take this deal because they want the, the government to drop the accusation about Farah because they themselves may have liabilities. Point that little gem out. Last gem. This is her closing point. Okay, now okay, her closing point. I read the whole brief. It's a wonderful brief, but you might find it boring. I find it fun. I'm going to tell you last point she makes. In conclusion, this is her filing love, Sydney Powell. In conclusion, yes, the government engaged in conduct so shocking to the conscience and so inimical to our system of justice, that it requires the dismissal of the charges for outrageous government conduct. conduct. She gives a a citation to a Supreme Court ruling. However, as fully briefed in our motion to compel and reply, at this time, Mr. Flynn only requests an order compelling the government to produce the additional Brady evidence he has requested in full and unredacted form and an order to show cause, which is a motion you can file, an order to show cause. the court to issue an order to show cause why the government should not be held in contempt. At the appropriate time, Mr. Flynn will file a separate motion asking that the court dismiss the prosecution for egregious government misconduct and in the interests of justice. One last piece she had in there was pointing out that the time they arm-twisted Flynn into pleading guilty, they were threatening Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's adult son, who had a wife and a baby at home threatening that they could charge him with crimes. Also, Flynn is thinking, keeping my adult son out of prison. Okay, fine. I'll plead to something. This has been brilliantly lawyered. It's not over yet but brilliantly lawyered by Sidney Powell, and in a way that actually is not just, as I said, not just defending Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, it is really exposing for the American public, if you're willing to pay attention and learn it, to recognize the degree to which the FBI, DOJ, CIA, and Brennan, and others, were so determined to get President Trump, all standards tossed to the wind, all legal uh, protocol dropped in order to get President Trump because to get Flynn, they figured Flynn will flip, he will go help us get Trump, and this was their mission. People, if this does not get cleaned out, if we do not have a massive clean out of the FBI, DOJ, arrests, prosecution, and jail time for at least a dozen people I could name, then we're deciding that we will abandon the rule of law in America, and that is not okay. Okay, we're gonna wrap up. We have one minute, but I can do it really fast. We're gonna talk about why the stories we talked about today matter to you. First story we had today. We had oh Kanye's conversion. I'm loving this guy. Never heard his music, but now I love him. Kanye West is an unparalleled pop culture icon. West epitomizes street cred for sure. His rap music reflected the reality of inner city life, marriage to Kim Kardashian, the ultimate validation of pop culture visibility. West's visible conversion of Christianity seems authentic. I understand we'll have to wait and see, but seems authentic. New Jesus is King album is huge. Message to 30. Million Twitter followers will be heard for Connie West. 2019 conversion to Christianity mark a U-turn moment in reclaiming America's Judeo-Christian culture. The coup exposed Lee Smith's book, Why It Matters. His book, The Plot Against the President, anchored to the role of Congressman Devin Nunes in exposing the coup, irrefutable proof of the coup for any honest, objective reader. America's grasp of the reality of the coup is growing. The coup attempt is the most egregious, political scandal in American history. The weaponized government of the Obama administration, FBI and DOJ plus the media equals organized crime. Okay, honest to goodness, it has to be prosecuted. Will there be accountability, real corrective actions, Barr and Durham hold the keys, what will they do? And in Sidney Powell's latest Flynn masterpiece, again, America's grasp of the coup attempt is growing. Sidney Powell filed a motion to compel Brady evidence in defense of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn and the government replied, And this is what they did reply. We don't have to provide anything. We don't have to. She points out in her motion that the government failed to provide Brady evidence before coercing a guilty plea and claims now that the plea was entered, they still have no Brady duty. Government still never produced earlier drafts of Flynn 302s and appears to be ignoring the fact that they can access them in their system. Her latest brief on behalf of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn is plain speak, revealing FBI and DOJ corruption, including apparent, deliberate, premeditated framing of Flynn. America will never recover if there's not accountability for the coup plot. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you for tuning in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Email me at Talk at gmail.com. I love to talk to our listeners. Like this Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter, subscribe on YouTube, be part of the American political conversation. It matters if you speak up for America. And that, my friends, is why I do this show every day to speak up for America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. Can you hear
1: America can we talk? Truth about America.